Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, a dean of the faculty and professor of Christian ethics, also at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. We're here today with a very interesting guest by the name of Matt Frad. You might recognize his name. I first heard him debating on the topic of pornography on the popular radio show, Unbelievable. Matt was winsome. He was thoughtful, uh, really speaking with somebody who made a case for the goodness of pornography. And I thought, we need to connect. I got his book, which is called The Porn Myth, which in my estimation is one of the best books on this topic. We connected. He also has a podcast called Pints with Aquinas, which is interesting and popular. Matt, thanks for joining us. But let me start by asking you a question, just broadly speaking. Of all the topics you could cover, what motivated you personally to write a book on the myths of pornography? Yeah, thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, I experienced a conversion to Jesus Christ at the age of 17. And uh, at that point, I tried to be holy as one ought when one becomes a Christian. And uh, the one thing that was really standing in my way was the sin of pornography. And um, several years after that, I began to find a good degree of freedom from it. And I began speaking out about that freedom, because at the time, there wasn't a lot of people doing this, at least it that seemed that way to me. And it just sort of grew from there. Um, I had a passion for it. I... Uh, it, it seems to me to be one of those obstacles that prevents the reception of the gospel. If you, if you think of the heart uh, being made ready to receive the seed of the gospel, uh, it seems to me that pornography, in, 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 in one sense, is, it scorches the earth and, and maybe makes the, uh, the germination of that seed impossible, right? Because how long can you go on believing that the human person has intrinsic dignity and unalienable rights? And at the same time, uh, engage in a media that treats people as a sort of disposable thing for my gratification. I think uh, eventually one will suffocate the other. Um, and yeah, that's it, I, I guess. I, I don't, it's funny, I, I usually joke at the start of my seminars on this. I say, my mum's super proud of me, you know. <laughs> Here I am speaking about <laughs> pornography. But I, I don't, I don't, I, I just, I, I, am, I have tremendous optimism. Uh, there's, a, there's an army of young people, teenagers and young adults, uh, who've seen what pornography's done to them, and uh, they don't think it's good, and they want a love that's more beautiful and more pure, I think. Well, Matt, I'm definitely not your mom, but I'm proud of you, because this issue is kind of the elephant in the room, and a lot of people aren't willing to talk about it. I'm wondering if you could talk about in what practical ways and in what depth do you see just the pervasiveness of pornography affecting our society, the church, relationships, individuals? In what way does it affect people and how they live their lives? Gosh, it affects so much. You know, I was tweeting about this yesterday. I said, here's an idea for a Marvel villain. I know you're a comic book guy, Sean, so you might appreciate this. If you want to destroy the world, well, you could start by destroying societies. Well, what's the fundamental building block of societies? Well, it's a family. All right, but what's the basis of the family? Well, the relationship between husband and wife. Okay, but what, what's that act that is proper to husband and wife? Well, that would be the marital embrace. All right, well, then if you want to destroy the world, pervert the conjugal act. Because as the family goes, so goes society, and so goes the world in which we live. Now, that might sound rather bleak, and I mean it to be, because I think it is that bleak. Uh, I think pornography is incredibly uh, uh, pervasive, and for good reason, 
right? It feels good. Uh, it's very rewarding in the, in, in the short term. Uh, it's a way to escape. It's a way to pacify one's emotional turbulence. Um, but like all sin, it leaves us with less than it promised. So when we go to pornography, we, we never went to, say, objectify people. We went for what? I don't know, excitement, but we became bored. We went for, uh, we went for joy. We became sad. We went because we wanted to be free to do whatever we wanted, and we became addicted and enslaved. We went for adult entertainment and became increasingly juvenile. So <clears throat> it's, I think it's just as pervasive in the church as it is in the world, and uh, it perverts, as I say, the conjugal act and prevents one uh, to, to look at another person as, as such. Right, like the problem with porn, it's been said, isn't actually that it shows too much. It's that it shows too little. It reduces the person with all of his or her complexity and individuality to a sort of two-dimensional thing for my consumption. So, um, for all for all its talk of um, exposure, pornography always ends up obfuscating the personhood of the performer. Right, she's the most ignored, even though at first it appeared that she was getting the most attention. I'm not interested in her, in her dreams, in her hopes, in her fears, in what happened to her when she was young. All of that would get in the way of this selfish act that I now wish to engage in. Our listeners, I think, will detect a bit of an accent from you. Uh, tell, just tell our listeners where, where did you grow up, and what what was it about that culture that you grew up in that uh, contributed to some of the issues that you wrestled with prior to coming to faith? Yeah, so I'm from the deep south, that is Australia, <laughs> and uh, I, like many people in the West in the 80s and 90s, grew up uh, finding pornography at friends' houses in the dad's closet or stealing it from newspaper stores and so forth. I had a, one of my very good friends' mum used to buy it for us at the age of 12 and 13, and my parents didn't know about it, and I was fine with that. And, um, yeah, I just, I just dove into it. I think, I think this is really important because when we want to demonize something, like, like it's important that we recognize that whenever we do something, we do it because we believe it's good for us, right? That's Aristotle. That's Thomas Aquinas. Like, you never choose something because you think it's bad for you. Like, even if what you're choosing is legitimately and objectively evil, you still choose it because you believe it to be a particular, like a certain good. And that's why I think it's important that those who are in, immersed in this just admit that and say, look, I like it. It makes me feel good. It makes, and that's, that's where I was at as a teenager. Um, and I never felt great about it, even as somebody who wasn't particularly interested in my faith. But it was only after coming to Christ that I realized I had to do away with it. Matt, what, what is it, in your view, that makes pornography such an insidious temptation for people and, and so hard to shake uh, for many adults? Well, I think, you know, other than the, other than the desire for, say, water and food, it's, it's like the most pressing and tempting urge that we have. Um, and we ought to have it. Uh, like, 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 sex is good, obviously, right? Where's the first commandment in the Bible? Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply, right? Uh, God didn't mean grow grapefruits and invent calculators. So, right, good. Sex is good. And sexual desire is good, um, but but pornography sort of taps into that and 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 perverts it, and it 
and it elicits within us, um, well, an unnatural sexual desire, a sexual desire that is inordinate and misplaced. Uh, and, it, and, and again, I think it, it, it feeds this sense of wanting to be loved, wanting to be powerful, wanting to be found attractive. And it also just gives us this incredible neurological uh, cocktail you know, of different uh, neurotransmitters. And so it gives us this sense of relief. And I think, I think if you could say, what's the one reason people go back to pornography again and again? I think the answer would be to soothe themselves. Like, I think it's the way we pacify our emotional affect, our emotional turbulence. Like, when I feel emasculated or invisible or shot down or not good enough or rejected or whatever... Then I, then I become, we all become emotionally turbulent. And we, we all have different behaviors that we then turn to to sort of quell that. And that might be like a bag of peanut butter M&Ms. It might be a bottle of whiskey. It might be just binging on Netflix. And not all of that, of course, is intrinsically disordered. Pornography certainly is, I think. Um, and so we turn to it to sort of pacify that. And it works quite effectively in, in the short term, but then leaves us more wretched than we began with. So if, if that, given that that's the case, why is it that uh, pornography overwhelmingly appeals to men and not to women? I, I believe that this is partly true and partly false. Part, like, partly true because I don't know how many men went out and bought Fifty Shades of Stupid, right? <laughs> so... The, 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 the idea, the cliche that men are more attracted visually, I think there's obviously some merit to that. But since the advent of, say, porn tube sites in 2006, like since we've been raising children with unfettered internet access, uh, which has allowed them to be exposed at a very young age, there is a tremendous degree of young women who are hooked on porn and masturbation. So I speak to about 50 to 70,000 young adults, teenagers every year, primarily on this topic. And the idea, when I, if I were to ever say this is a guy's issue, not a girl's issue, it just, it wouldn't resonate and it wouldn't be true. So wherever I go, I'm met by young women who say, thank you for saying that this isn't just a guy's problem. I think, you know, for men who are struggling, they might feel like they're all struggling together. They're all in the same sort of prison cell, you might say, but at least they're in it together. Whereas for women, it feels often like solitary confinement. No one knows that the other is struggling, and it seems to be socially unacceptable to, to admit that, that one is. So, so would you say, help us understand this a bit, is the, is the experience with pornography different for men than it is for women? Yeah, and I can only go from what women have told me, not being one, obviously, and what they tell me is... Pre appreciate you accepting your limits there. <laughs> That's right. Well, not everyone does. It's important to accept reality. Well, I think um, what women tell me is when they view pornography, they envision, they imagine themselves to be the woman. Like at least she's being pursued. Like you know, in a, in a culture that's become emasculated due to pornography, where you've got these gorgeous twenty and thirty year old women who aren't being pursued and feel completely invisible, at least this woman is. You know, even if it's against her will to some degree. And I think in that sense, um, it, it might be viewed differently. And also the triggers that lead one to consume pornography, male or female, might be different as well. But certainly both are seeking like sexual arousal and climax through this medium. 
Pornography tells a certain seductive story about what brings pleasure and kind of meaning and goodness to life. I'm curious what the counterclaim is without explicitly citing scripture that you would use mm-hmm. when talking to, say, non-Christians or people that don't hold the Bible mm-hmm. as authoritative to convince them that there is something intrinsically wrong with pornography and there's a better alternative. Great question. So, Polish philosopher, Karol Wojtyła, who became John Paul II, but since we're talking to a non-Christian, we'll just refer to him as Polish philosopher, Karol Wojtyła. He wrote uh, this. He said, The human person is a good towards which the only proper and adequate attitude is love. Now, that's either true or it isn't. And we might not have time to look at the ontological rationale for such a claim. But I think most people hope that it's true and try to live as if it's true. So, all right, if that's true, if the human person is a good towards which the only proper and adequate attitude is love, then we could say, well, what is love? And then we might say with Aquinas that to love at least means this. It at least means that you're willing the good of the other for the sake of the other, all right? Not for your sake. You know, it's, I don't want my wife to work out so she's hot, you know. Not that there's anything wrong with wanting your spouse to be attractive, but I want my wife to work out perhaps because she's feeling sick and this will help, help her feel good, right? I, love is to will the good of the other for the sake of the other. But see... The, the contrary to love, says Wojtyla, is use. So when one consumes pornography, one is treating a person merely, not, you know, merely as a means to an end, merely a means to a selfish end, where this, beca- and I'm, now I'm repeating myself, but this person becomes a sort of two-dimensional thing for my selfish consumption. So that would be the first thing I'd point out. Like, I think, as a Christian, and they don't have to agree with this, but I think, We've been made by love, to love, and for love. Now, that's not just some sort of hallmark-sounding cliche, but that we have love as our origin, love as our vocation, and love as our destiny. And if we don't get that right, we won't get life right. Like, the more immersed one is in behaviors that are contrary to, like, what the person is, the more senseless, the more banal, the more sort of sepia-toned, I think, one's life and relations will become. Uh, And many people are beginning to realize this. Like, this isn't just a religious issue, just to cite two websites. My friend Gary Wilson is an atheist. He runs a website, yourbrainonporn.com, where he compiles all the studies coming out of academia showing why porn's bad for us on a scientific uh, level. Uh, The other is my friend Noah Church, uh, sorry, Alexander Rhodes, who runs the website nofap.com, which has a subreddit group of around three to 400,000 members, many of whom aren't religious, and nor is Alexander Rhodes who runs it. And I think it's because the more one engages in this behavior, the more sort of meaningless, the most meaningful act becomes, and that can't but affect you. And for that reason, many people are trying to put away porn for good. I love that you're approaching this question, this sense of design for human behavior, love, because then the next question really becomes what worldview really meets those desires that we have and that truth about the world. So I think that's a wonderful approach. Let me ask you this from your book, which is called The Porn Myth. There's 24 different chapters that are short and concise, and you walk through all these myths that culture and many in the church have embraced. Would you take maybe a couple of these that you think are most pressing, most likely for young people or people in culture today to believe, and then show us the other side of them? 
Yeah, I'll try and do it briefly. I think one is the idea that pornography is not addictive. And so someone might say only drugs are addictive. Pornography is not a drug. Therefore, pornography is not addictive. And other people, even Christians, might say, besides, when people throw out the term addiction, what they're doing is they're hiding behind this term in order to avoid responsibility. You know, a Christian, let's say, who doesn't think he ought to be looking at porn might consider himself addicted if he's only looking at it once every two months or something. So let's, it's not an addiction. It doesn't really have any negative consequences in the brain, physiologically, like real addictions. But the idea that because something, because there's something that you don't inhale or don't ingest in some way, that it isn't addictive, is out of touch with what we know through modern neuroscience. Like, it's, like since neuroscientists started looking in the brain, it's changed how we understand addiction. So we now know, right, that behaviors can be just as addictive as substances can. That's why in the DSM-5, uh, put out by the APA, the American Psych- Psychiatric Association, they have a whole category for, for, for natural addictions, one of which is pathological gambling. And right now, there's a, I think there's 39 uh, peer-reviewed neuroscience-based studies on porn users. And every single one of them supports the addiction model. Now, when I use the word addiction, I'm using it in the neurological sense. So if somebody agrees, say, that meth or nicotine or alcohol can be addictive, then I think they would surely concede that something bad must be taking place in the person's brain the further they get immersed in this addiction. And that's actually accurate. Well, these 39 studies show that something similar happens with a natural addiction like pornography. So just to cite one study, it came out a couple of years ago from the Max Planck Institute in Germany, uh, 2014, I think. Uh, They found that the more one consumed pornography, the smaller part, they had different parts of their brain that had begun to shrink uh, including the sort of the, 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 the frontal lobe areas that are key for sort of managerial uh, behaviors. And uh, so that's rather concerning. So anyone could look that up, right? They could look up Kuhn study the brain on porn and, and read it for themselves. So that, that would be that would be a big one, I think. Obviously, there's a lot more, but I don't want to bog you down with too much. Why don't Matt? We got time here. Why don't you? Why don't you give us a second myth that you think is pretty close to the top of the list? I think a second myth is that pornography or strip clubs or this sort of behavior is adult entertainment, right? And of course, we believe this because these institutions need five-foot neon signs screaming that they are one, which seems to me to be the height of defensive advertising, right? Usually, actions speak louder than words. Uh, and in fact, here they do as well. Like, if you need to pay a woman money to pretend to like you, uh, you might just need a five-foot neon sign to convince you that you are one. Because anyone with sober reflection would come to the conclusion that this is a shameful act, this is a shameful behavior. Like, there's actually nothing adult, gentlemanly, masculine about... Uh, pleasuring oneself to one's iPhone or to pixels on a screen. And so to, it's like, you know, this reminds me of Nietzsche, right? Like, so Nietzsche has this idea of resentment, which was the word he used to describe those people who found themselves impotent to attain certain goods and therefore demonized the goods that they, they couldn't possess. And I think something similar happens when somebody is addicted to pornography and they're living a, a a sort of depraved lifestyle. 
what do they do? Well, they could admit that they're weak and can't seem to attain chastity, or they could demonize chastity, right? So now I'm the frigid, I'm the uptight one, I'm the one who's anti-sex. Uh, so, it, yeah, it seems to me to be similar to that, what, what Nietzsche talks about. You have to, it's not enough that people don't judge you for your bad action, you need them to celebrate you as well. So I think this idea that the pornography or other such behaviors, a gentlemanly or adult entertainment is just asinine. You've clearly done a ton of research on this topic, but I'm curious, what what has surprised you most in your research on the effects of pornography? Well, one of the things I find rather scary is the dramatic increase in things like erectile dysfunction uh, in men, um, uh, premature ejaculation in men, right, like... Uh, like uh, sexual dysfunction in women due to pornography. And this all started spiking pretty heavily around 2006. And there's a reason for that, and that is that that's when porn tube sites, like, hit the internet. Uh, and, and since that time, I mean, you've probably noticed, you know, the adverts for Viagra skyrocketing. And, and a lot of medical doctors that I speak to say that young, healthy men coming to them looking for this stuff. Uh, Norman Doidge, who wrote the book, the, the Brain That Changes Itself, you know, he t says we should call this porn-induced impotency. Uh, Dr. Abraham Morgenthaler, the clinical neurologist at Harvard Medical School, is talking about this. So this is one thing I think we have a right to know, obviously. Time magazine, a couple, just a couple of years ago, had a great article which, which documented all of the studies that are coming out, saying, like, look, if you, if you want to be sexually dissatisfied, it, 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 then pornography is the way to go. Like, they, I can't think of anything better. Like, if you want to be sexually dissatisfied, if you want to shoot your future marriage in the head before it begins, pornography is definitely the way to do that. But clearly, most sane people don't want to do that, and so avoiding pornography is a great idea. Matt, given that, that uh, the availability of pornography is, you know, is there just at the click of a mouse, um, what advice would you have to parents, uh, teachers, youth pastors, um, but, but I think I'm thinking mainly for parents in dealing with, you know, kids that are, you know, 12, I don't know, 10, 12, adolescents, um, to help combat the, just the insidiousness of this addiction. Well, I'm going to say something that might sound rather scandalous, but here we go. I, I think parents ought to be talking to their children about pornography from about the age of six. And the reason I Amen, by come the up way. with the, yeah, the reason I say six is because it's usually at that age that one has some access to a screen. Now, when I was a boy, screens didn't access this thing called the internet, whereas today, almost every screen, including you know the screen we play Xbox on, can 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 access pornography. And for that reason, we should warn our children about it. I have a podcast. You mentioned one earlier, Sean, but I have two podcasts. One's just devoted to this topic of pornography. It's called Love People Use Things, and I have a whole section for parents on, on this topic. But I would say give your children an internal filter for an unfiltered world. And you might say to me, well, how on earth does that conversation look? Well, let me just boil it down to a, to a sentence or two. You might say to your son or daughter, uh, pornography, you'll say, is pictures or videos or maybe cartoons of people who are showing parts of their body that their bathing suit should cover. And if you ever see that, you should always tell mummy or daddy, 
and we'd be really proud of you for doing that. You might think you'd get in trouble, but you wouldn't get in trouble. Uh, we'd be very grateful, and, and, and we'd be proud of you for doing that, you see. Like, I think that, that, that very likely possibly changes the trajectory of a kid's life right there. Because if your kid has stumbled across porn, it's not his fault. It's your fault, parent. Like, you're the one who gave him a portable X-rated movie theater called a phone that, that he keeps in his pocket. And so to, 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 to birth our children into a sexualized culture, to give them portable X-rated movie theaters, and then to get angry at them for finding what they ought to find attractive, that is sex and the naked body, that's irrational. Now, I understand why parents get upset, because they're scared for their kids. They want what's best for their kids, and so they just react. But I would say if your child has been looking at porn, that you should sit them down and apologize to them and say, I'm sorry that this happened to you. It shouldn't have happened to you. And I want you to know that Daddy and Mummy are going to take some steps to make sure that we as a family are better protected. So as I say, I have a whole podcast just dealing with this issue at lovepeopleusethings.fm, like AMFM, if people are interested. Matt, I think that, that's, that's really helpful advice. And I think that that's a completely different tra- trajectory to that conversation that I think most parents have with their kids when it comes to this subject. Uh, so thank you for just incredibly insightful stuff, uh, particularly the material on how pornography affects the brain uh, and the just have the consensus among the neuroscientists that it is clearly addictive uh, and what it does to the brain. That's, that's really helpful stuff for us. So we, we've been with Matt, Matt Frad today. I want to highlight his book, uh, The Porn Myth, if you don't have that, published by Ignatius Press. Uh, subtitled Explore, Exposing the Reality Behind the Fantasy of Pornography. Matt, we're very grateful for you being with us today on the podcast, um, and we'll, we'll hope that uh, maybe in the, in the years to come, uh, some of these myths about pornography will actually be dispelled. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Matt Frad. And to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with your friends. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.